0: I'm glad you guys are here. My name's David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 19. So, uh, last week, we saw the beginning of the deterioration, the fraying of Saul's relationship with David. Almost every relationship, when it begins to go south, there's responsibility on both sides. This is one of the very, 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 very few times where you see. All of the responsibility is on one person. And uh, chapter 18 goes to great lengths to let us know this is all on Saul. It's 100% on Saul. David hasn't done anything at all to hurt uh, his relationship. Saul's out of step with uh, everyone, really, regarding David. Initially, Saul loves David, and that same word is used to describe Jonathan, his son's uh, posture towards David, his daughter Michael's posture towards David. He loves David. Except Saul. And then uh, chapter 18, verse 9, he begins to look at David suspiciously or jealously. And from that time on, he does not love David, but he begins to see David as a rival. And it's not even that Saul is just out of step with everybody else uh, regarding David. He, it, most significantly, he's out of step with the Lord concerning David. At the end of the chapter, we read that Saul knows the hand of God is on David. And he recognizes David is The one who God has chosen to succeed him. He recognizes God's favor on David's life. And rather than, at a minimum, getting out of the way, he chooses to become an enemy of David for the rest of his life. And so at that point, he hasn't just set himself up against David. He set himself up against God. This is someone who God has chosen and Saul is actively opposing him. And so all of the hostility that we see in Saul, we said, was rooted in his own insecurity. He gets suspicious. He gets jealous, and it's because he he doesn't have any... All he has is a position. He has no relationship with God. He has a position as king, and when that is threatened by David, he doesn't know what to do, and so he lashes out. And we'll see second verse, same as the first today. Uh, It just continues to go downhill. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go and stand out with my father in the field where you are. I will speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. That's Goliath. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So up to this point, uh, the way Saul has gone after David is indirect. He put him uh, as a leader in the army thinking battlefield's a dangerous place. Maybe the Philistines will kill him. He encouraged a marriage between David and his daughter, Michael, thinking that she would spiritually corrupt David. Now he's taking on a new tactic. He is going directly at him. He says he's got to die, and he tells his attendants to kill him. Now, Jonathan loves David. He's a kindred spirit of David. and our language, is say they're, they're best friends, and uh, Jonathan is actually the, the one who has the most to lose from David being elevated to the kingship. That's a position that by Inheritance Jonathan would have gotten. But rather than getting bitter, rather than getting angry, rather than getting in David's way, Jonathan blesses David and actually helps him pursue his calling and his destiny. And this is a step in that process. Jonathan's been on the, the wrong end of his father's craziness before, this kind of rash behavior. In chapter 14, there's a, they're, they're in battle. And Saul makes an oath and says, anyone who eats during this battle is going to be killed. Jonathan doesn't hear the oath. He eats some honey in the battle. Then afterwards, Saul finds out he's about to kill Jonathan. And the the army steps in. They intercede and say, you can't can't do this. And Saul changes his mind. And I think maybe Jonathan is thinking this will happen again. Maybe dad's just a little irrational today. Maybe Maybe he'll take it back. And so he goes to his dad and he says, here, let me lay out for you three reasons why you can't kill david he's innocent he hadn't done anything wrong the things that he's done have actually helped you they've benefited you and they've benefited our nation and it would be a sin for you to kill him so david hasn't sinned he's actually helped and it would be a sin for you to kill him and it, it seems to win saul over there's no reason to think that he's insincere in this vow that he makes when he says okay he swears before the lord I, i'm not going to kill david So Saul has changed his mind, Jonathan has won him over, and so Jonathan brings David back into the fold, and Saul loves David again, but not for very long. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with the spear, but David eluded him. As Saul drove the spear into the wall, and that night David made good his... I skipped a verse. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in, the, in, in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night David made good his escape. So, it's to his old behavior. So uh, we've seen this before. We've seen this evil spirit come upon Saul uh, in the past. That's happened. David has worshipped in his presence. The evil spirit has left Saul, and he's found peace. Then last week, we saw this evil spirit come upon Saul. David worshipped in his presence, and Saul tried to kill him twice. He threw a spear at him twice, and that's what we see here again. David, gets, uh, David leads the people in, in battle. He wins. Most likely, there's some public celebration where he's honored that pricks that jealousy in Saul's heart this evil spirit comes upon him and he reacts poorly he tries to kill David If it tells you anything about Saul's state of mind he's sitting in his house with a spear in his hand that would be tonight when you're in your lazy boy do you keep a loaded gun in your lap I mean that's that's how paranoid and unhinged he is at this point. And so David makes good his escape. He's 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 done. He runs away from Saul, and for the next seven, eight, ten years, he will be on the run from Saul. He is never uh, in Saul's house again after this. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him. Uh, but Michael, David's wife, remember that Saul's daughter, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent his men to capture David, Michael said he's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and said, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. When the men entered, there was an idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? So Jonathan... Saul's son has protected David, and now we see his daughter, Michael, protecting David. She's she's, uh, Saul's daughter. She hears about this plot to kill David, and she says, you've got to get out of here. So she lets him down out of the window of the house, and he runs away, and we'll see where he goes next. And she has a life-size idol that she puts in the bed. This is probably the first time in history you have that little stuff-the-bed trick and pull the sheet up. So that's what she's done, put some goat hair on top of the idol. You know, we said or or Saul wanted to encourage this marriage because he thought maybe Michael would spiritually corrupt David. And maybe it's true if she has a five and a half foot idol in her house. She probably is not the most devoted follower of the Lord. But she does. She does try to protect her husband and the soldiers come and she says he's sick. And Saul says, I don't care. And he sends him back again and says, bring him to me sick then I'll kill him. And then they realize that they've been deceived, and Saul says to his daughter, Why did you do this? And this is, you can either see this as, um, maybe a knock on her character, or maybe she just knows her dad, something, both, she, she lies and says, David threatened to kill me. And maybe again, that's because she's a liar and has poor character, or maybe she just knows her dad and knows, Well, you've already threatened to kill Jonathan at one point. You're pursuing David, who's never done anything but benefit you. You, you you'll kill me also. So for whatever reason, to save her own skin or she lies, and uh, David gets away. And we see Saul here describe David as his enemy. And again, think about what David's done. All he's done is worship when Saul is being tormented by an evil spirit. After 40 days of Goliath taunting the entire army, David takes a massive risk and says, I'll fight him, and that benefits Saul and the nation. That's all he's done. And now he's led Saul's army anywhere Saul has sent him without complaint, and he's won every is risk his life time and time and time and time again for Saul. Saul tries to kill him in his room, and David comes back and leads worship when this evil spirit torments him. Ridiculous. It's irrational for Saul to conceive of David as his enemy, yet he does. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David's at Naoth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, so he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he said, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul among the prophets. They probably said other things also. <laughs> so, weird scene. David runs to Samuel. He's three miles away in his hometown. Remember, Samuel's the prophet of the nation. He's anointed Saul to be king. Through, through him, God rejects Saul as king. And he anoints David to be king. So David's going to Ramah, again, just three miles away. He's looking for some support. And he says, here's everything that's happening. And then within Ramah, there's a section of the town, Naoth, and uh, apparently Samuel and this group of prophets, if they didn't live there, it's at least where they spent their time. Saul sends three different detachments of soldiers to arrest David. And each one of these groups of guys, when they get near him, something happens and they prophesy, whatever that means. And it keeps them from arresting David. They're not able to get to him. And then Saul goes and says, I'll just take matters in my own hands, and the exact and the same thing happens to him. He takes off his clothes, at a minimum, he takes off his royal robe, and maybe he's just wearing his tunic. He might not be buck naked, but he's maybe in his boxers or something at that point. Brief. He's there all day and all night prophesying. Again, it keeps him from getting his hands on David. I'd, I'd seen for sure. Uh, my opinion on maybe what's going on, that's all the data we have, so this is just my speculation. Um, we, we see the prophecy throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We hardly ever see stuff like this. Maybe five times in the Bible, and this is four of them, do you see that kind of behavior. First Corinthians 14 says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Like, you're, you're in control. You're not possessed. You're not taken over. And in this sense, so it seems like these guys kind of are. They want to do something, and they're prevented from doing it by God. Uh, One element of prophecy is praise. I think maybe what's going on is Samuel's leading a kind of a, maybe like a worship service. And it's a pretty spiritually intense atmosphere. Um, God is everywhere all the time, but at different times and places, God draws nearer to us. He makes himself more readily known to us, and you may can Think of times like that in your own life where you would maybe say, man, I I sensed the Lord or I felt the Lord's presence. And, And when we see that in the Bible, there's almost always a physical response from people. And normally it's them falling down and shaking in some way. And there's some scriptures there up on the screen that speak to that Old and New Testament. And it really has nothing to do with the heart condition of the people. That passage in John, it's soldiers who are coming to arrest Jesus who fall down. They don't love him. They don't honor him. They think he's a criminal and they're coming to arrest him. And yet, when there's a glimpse of who he really is, they all fall down. And so I'm wondering if that's what's happening. If this is some kind of a worship service type atmosphere and we've seen Jonathan protect David, we've seen Michael protect David, and this is God saying, I'm going to protect you also. And so his, God's presence is so intense, maybe, in that place, when these guys come to arrest him, they can't help but fall down. Because that 's what happens when we 're in the presence of God, and we're rare, rarely it seems like does God make himself known in those ways, but when he does, people tend to respond physically there's an interesting passage in Philippians two Paul is talking about jesus descent when he becomes a man, and then his glorification when uh, the Father lifts him up, and it says at the name of Jesus every uh, knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. And we know not everyone's going to become a Christian. But if every means every, then at some point and in some way, everyone is going to acknowledge who Jesus is. Both physically, they're going to kneel, and verbally, they're going to say. They may, he, Jesus may not be their Lord, but they're going to acknowledge that he's the Lord. And I'm wondering also if that's what's going on here, if that's the prophecy part, that's the praise part. God's presence is so uh, real in this worship service that these guys come in and physically they, they probably fall on the ground. They can't, they can't get physically to David and they acknowledge that God is holy and that God is righteous and that God is all of those things that we know God to be. Because when you're in it, like, it doesn't matter whether they, they may love him, I don't know, but it's irrelevant When you're in his presence in that way. There's nothing really to do except to acknowledge him. And then when Saul comes, the same thing happens. And he takes off his robe. And you can probably look at that symbolically. His robe would have been a royal robe. And him taking it off, he realizes he's not. God's done with him as the king. And so that's what I think is going on. Again, that's my opinion. It it is an odd scene. But I think the, the truth of it is we see God protecting David. Jonathan has protected David. Michael has protected David. And now Saul is protect—excuse me, God is protecting David from Saul. So uh, the place I want us to spend our time is this thing in Saul's heart where he reverts. Once more, war broke out. David went and fought the Philistines, struck them with such force, they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house, With a spear in his hand, while David was playing the liar, Saul tried to pin him to the wall uh, with his spear, but David eluded him. So, if you believe, and I do, if if you grant Saul was genuine when he said, I'm not going to harm David. I swear to the Lord, I'm not going to harm him. I'm not going to kill him. If you believe that was a genuine uh, statement, a genuine vow or promise from Saul, and I do, and there's no reason to think otherwise, well, why didn't he follow through? Why does Saul vow to not harm David and then try to kill him? And then not just try to kill him once, but actually try to hunt him down. And we'll see for the rest of David's life, he's on the run because Saul is actively seeking to kill him. Why does that happen? If Saul truly meant, I'm not going to kill him. I promise I'm not going to do this. And again, Jonathan believed him, knows him as well as anybody. No reason biblically to think that he wasn't telling the truth, wasn't being sincere and genuine. Why can Saul not follow through? What percentage of New Year's resolutions do you think fail? Guess. 92. We're terrible people. 92%. You know how much money we spend on self-help stuff every year just in the U.S.? $11 $11 billion on nine cents. That's all it is. It's its nonsense. The reason 92% of New Year's resolutions fail, the reason we spend $11 billion looking for somebody, a book, a seminar, an infomercial, somebody who can tell us how to do life better, it's the same reason Saul makes a genuine commitment and can't follow through. The issue for us, it's not motivation. It's not that we lack the motivation. It's not even that we lack the discipline. We're dealing with the wrong issue. Ultimately, our issue is not our behavior, it's our heart. And until we deal with our heart, our behavior is never going to change long term. It's never going to change over time. Proverbs 423. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because it is the wellspring, the source of life. You've got to know this. You have to know this about yourself. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. All of your life comes out of your heart. Jesus agrees. He says, you can't, good trees don't produce bad fruit, bad trees don't produce good fruit. Trees produce. Fruit in keeping with their kind. Everything you say, is it comes out of your heart. When he's getting, uh, his disciples are getting uh, ripped by the Pharisees because they don't wash their hands right. Jesus says, you don't get it. Uncleanliness, spiritually. It has nothing to do with what you're eating. That stuff just goes into your stomach and passes through your body. It has everything to do with what comes out of you. It's your heart that's evil. And so all of these evil actions actually come from within you. They're not They're not external to you. They're not sticking to you. You can't wash them off by washing your hands a certain number of times or in a certain way. You've got to deal with the source, which is your heart. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you're done. Nobody's more righteous than the Pharisees or the scribes. They win. There's 613 rules in the Old Testament, and they had them all memorized. And they they didn't just have those laws memorized. They were meticulous in following them. And they built a fence around them. If it's a sin to work on the Sabbath, because we're supposed to honor it and keep it holy, and they decided it's a sin to walk a mile, that's work, to walk a mile. They would say you can't walk more than three-fourths of a mile just in case you miscount your steps. If you're not allowed to boil a kid in his mother's milk for whatever reason and whatever that means, it's in Leviticus, you're not allowed to do that. What they would say is to make sure it never happens, you need two sets of dishes. You need a set for meat and you need a set for dairy. That way you can never accidentally boil a kid in his mother's milk. That's how meticulous they were. That's how committed they were to following the law. When Jesus criticizes them, he says, you tithe your spices. Think about your pots in your on your back deck where you've got your rosemary and your mint and your dill. They're taking 10% of that bush, of that plant, and taking it to the temple. Because that's something that grew and it was produced in the, under their care. That is how meticulous. That's how they're crossing every T and dotting every I. Down to the the spices on their back patio, they're making sure they give ten percent of that to the temple. You can't exceed their righteousness. You can't keep the law better than them. If it's about behavior, we're all done. And that's where the people got. They're like, we're done. I can't. Can you can you memorize six hundred and thirteen laws? No, none of us can. We can't remember phone numbers anymore. We don't have a shot. Not a. Much less follow them, every day. We're done, and that's where people got. They're like, we can't keep the law. Y'all, y'all do it. They're like rich religious celebrities. You do it for us. We're unclean sinners, and Jesus comes and says, your righteousness actually has to exceed theirs. It's got to be more. But he meant by more is he meant deeper, and he pushes everything into. People's hearts. He says it's not just whether you kill somebody. It's what you say about them. and It's not just about whether you actually commit adultery. It's about whether you look lustfully at someone else. Those are the things. It all starts in here. It begins in your heart. You can't make an orange tree an apple tree by tying apples onto the branches. You have to deal with the tree. And that's what Jesus says. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Saul doesn't. Saul thinks, you know what? I'm going to make a commitment. I'm not going to kill David. And I think he means it. And he may have gone days or weeks or months without killing David. He may have had opportunities where something happened. Maybe David got some military acclaim and Saul didn't respond. Maybe David did well and people said, hey, David's a great general. And he didn't respond. But because he never dealt with the insecurity and the jealousy in his own heart, it was just a matter of time. Remember the circumstances. In chapter 18, David kills Goliath. And these women say Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And then Saul begins to look suspiciously at David. David hadn't done anything. Saul begins to look suspiciously and jealously at him because people are honoring David for his military success. And then when that evil spirit comes on him, the next day he tries to kill him never done that before the only thing that changed is his view of david his perspective he began to see him as a rival i think the same thing happens again it's familiar circumstances in chapter 19 david leads the excuse me leads the israelites against the philistines and he deals them a quote heavy blow he destroys them he blows them out you know there's a celebration after that's what you do after a victory And Saul is hearing about it. And then that evil spirit comes on him. It looks a whole lot like chapter 18. And because he hasn't dealt with his jealousy, and because he hasn't dealt with his insecurity, when he's put back in that position again, and that insecurity is poked by other people saying David is a great military leader. And that's the only thing a king does. It's not an administrative role at this point. It's just a military role. That's what the people wanted, someone who would lead us in battle. And when David is successful and people recognize that and honor him for that, it pokes that place in Saul's heart that's jealous and suspicious and he reacts violently. And he will continue to react violently until he deals with his heart. Think about it like this. That picture of the evil spirit coming on Saul is helpful for us. Temptation is external. James says God doesn't tempt us. If you're tempted, you can't blame the Lord. It's something external to you that comes upon you. Have you ever tried to climb one of those rock walls? They have handholds, or you can't can't get up them. The more handholds, the easier. What James says is you're tempted by your own evil desires. You're enticed by your own evil desires. Imagine those things as those handholds on the rock wall. So temptation comes, and it's looking for something on your heart to grab onto. Your evil desires are what it's grabbing onto. Greed, self-pity, pride, insecurity, lust—whatever those things are, those things that are in your—not your behaviors, your desires, your woundedness, your brokenness, your sinfulness—not your actions. That's what temptation is grabbing onto. The temptation is then to act on those evil desires. That—that's the way it works. But it's looking, that temptation, that wickedness is looking for something to grab onto, a handhold or a foothold in your heart. Saul is going to fall unless he removes the handholds. That's the only way. James says this is how you deal with sin in chapter 4. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You submit to God. You resist the devil and pretend that guy, we don't know him, so it won't hurt his feelings. Let's say he's evil in temptation. If there's no handholds, he falls off the wall. There's nothing for him to grab onto. If there are evil desires that are deeply embedded in your heart, then that's a a great place for that temptation to latch on. Because Saul never deals with the handholds. Because he never deals with his jealousy and his insecurity. There's something for that evil spirit, that temptation to grab onto. And then it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before he wears out. Before his willpower is eroded. And he acts. He gives in to that temptation. Where he resists God. And he submits to the devil. And God, quote, flees from him. And that's what happens to us. God never leaves us or forsakes us. But if we don't submit to him... And we put ourselves in a position where we can't receive his grace. If you can't receive his grace, then you're standing on your own. And how long is that going to last in the face of temptation? And your experience and my experience says it doesn't last very long. If you're a Christian, you know you never have to sin again. You will, but you don't have to. You're not compelled to. You have all of the resources in Jesus to resist temptation. The Holy Spirit lives within you. And he can strengthen you so that you can submit to God and resist the devil. You don't have to sin. You will because we're weak and we fall. And when that happens, we confess and we repent and we're forgiven and we're restored. But you're not compelled to sin. You don't have to do that. Temptation is external and as a Christian you've been given all the resources that you need. All of the resources that you need to resist, to stand up, to choose righteousness over rebellion and wickedness. But in the moment, Saul doesn't do that. And in the moment, oftentimes, we don't either. We focus on behavior modification. I'm going to change the way I act. And it lasts for a week or two weeks or a month. Or maybe if you're incredibly disciplined, maybe it lasts for six months. But then you wind up in those familiar circumstances again. You're tired maybe. You're run down. And the same behavior comes out. You wind up getting that, you haven't dealt with the handhold. So the temptation maybe is just personify it. The temptation is just kind of hanging back, waiting for an opportunity. And in a moment of weakness, it latches on to that evil desire that you haven't dealt with. And then all of your days and weeks and months of staying righteous and staying holy and saying no and resisting, they all come crashing down in a second of weakness. Because you didn't deal with the root of the problem. Whatever that problem happens to be. Some of you, isolated sinful acts over time can become a sinful pattern. And you can feel like you're enslaved. You're gripped by this behavior. I can't not blow up at somebody. Maybe not on Monday. Maybe not on Wednesday. It's going to happen before the end of the week. I know it is. And I try. I commit. God, I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to blow at my top. And I mean it. I mean it right now. And there's this part of me that knows, but it's going to happen. I'm going to be back in the situation. Somebody's going to say something or do something. It's going to be one thing after another, and I, I'm going to. God, I'm not going to look at pornography. I'm not going to do that. But I know it's just a matter of time. Again, it may not be tonight. It may not be tomorrow night, but at some point, I'm going to. I'm not going to drink too much, and you mean it. It's just a matter of time. We get these isolated sinful acts. If we continue to engage in them, can become a sinful pattern where we feel like we're enslaved. We feel like we're in chains. Some people call that a stronghold. We feel like it's just a matter. We we live defeated. It's just a matter of time before I engage in that behavior again. And the issue it's it's we ha- we're not dealing with the evil desire. We're trying to deal with the behavior. You can't put enough filters on your internet to avoid pornography. You have to deal with the heart issue, and it's not lust. That's not the issue. And 98% of the people who struggle with pornography is not lust. It's some area of pain and a lack of control, and that's how you're exerting control and how you're numbing pain. And until you deal with that, you're going to keep going back. Why are you losing your temper? Are you giving God the opportunity to look at the handhold in your heart? Or are you just snapping the rubber band on your wrist every time you blow up at somebody? You can't buy enough rubber bands. You can't. You can't meditate enough and find your happy place. Like, you can't do that enough. You have to deal with the de- evil desire in your heart that that temptation is grabbing onto. And once you do, you won't need the rubber band. And you won't need the internet filter. There's nothing for that temptation to grab onto in your heart. There is no evil desire there. It loses its power. You may be sitting there going, that that doesn't happen. That's a pipe dream for me. You realize how long I've struggled with this. It's the gospel. What Jesus did for us, we're going to take communion his life and his death and his resurrection. We talked about it a few weeks ago. He's the victor. He defeated sin and Satan and death. So you don't have to. He fought the battle for you. What you say is I'm on your team and I acknowledge my need for you. I recognize I can't changing my behavior doesn't do anything and I can't change my heart. So I submit to you, God, and I recognize my need for your grace. I recognize my need. For your grace. So I can resist the devil and trust that he will flee from me. It's not about how hard you try or how much you want it. It's a recognition that no matter how hard you try or how much you want, hang as many apples on an orange tree as you want is not becoming an apple tree. You gotta, it, you have to start fundamentally with the nature of the thing. And fundamentally, with the nature of us, it's our hearts, because all of life proceeds from there. Could you, this morning, recognize, is there any place where you're resisting God? Would you, this morning, say, I'm going to realize and acknowledge my need. I'm not going to try anymore. It's not about giving up. It's about recognizing. Jesus said this. Y'all have tried for 2,000 years to follow 613 rules, and you're terrible. The rules, you're self-righteous, small-hearted people. You've missed the big picture. You're tithing on your rosemary. That's great. You're neglecting justice, which is terrible. You're tithing on your parsley. That's great. You're neglecting righteousness, which is terrible. You're straining out a gnat, the smallest unclean animal, which is awesome. You're swallowing a camel, which is the biggest unclean animal, which is terrible. So even when you think you're getting it right, you're getting it wrong. And so what God does is he says you can't do it. You spent 2,000 years trying to follow the rules. So our, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a new set of operating guidelines. It's a new covenant. I'm going to take those 613 laws and I'm going to put them in your heart. They're not going to be written on tablets of stone anymore. They're going to be written on your heart. And I'm going to give you my spirit and he's going to move you to keep the law. You don't even have to, he's going to motivate you to keep the law. How about that? You don't even have to provide your own motivation. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to put my spirit within you and he is going to move you and enable you and empower you to do the things I'm asking you to do. You can choose to live under the old covenant. How hard you work and how much you want it. And how disciplined you are in managing your behavior. And you will fail like everyone has failed. Across time, across cultures, and across the world. Or you can choose to live under a new covenant that says, Jesus, I acknowledge I can't do it. I can't do it. And I thank you that you died in my place. You took the penalty that I deserved, And you defeated sin and Satan and death so I can live free and victoriously. And I acknowledge my need for you. Step one is acknowledging. Where are the places where I'm resisting God this morning? You may already be following him. You may already be a believer. Most of you are that person. You need to drop that behavior. You need to pick up this. Where you're resisting him. Would you this morning acknowledge that? Submit. And watch what he does. Let's pray. I want you to pray with me for a minute. Then we're going to take communion the way we do that here. You'll come forward a row at a time. Some of you may not want to take communion, and that's totally fine. I would still encourage you to come forward uh, so the people in your row don't have to step over you or around you. But you can just make a loop and go back to your seat. This is gluten-free on the ends and regular uh, in the middle. And so you can take that, um, break off a piece of the bread, and dip it in the juice. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But I would say, if you feel like there's a place where sin has eaten your lunch, let's pray with you. You confess to God and you're forgiven. You confess to other people and you're healed. That's also in James. You don't want to, that can be difficult. You don't have to give people the blow by blow. But it, it, it breaks the power of sin to say, I struggle with. And then you say it to somebody else. And everything you say up here is, confidential but it will break the power of that sin I promise if you're willing to confess it to somebody else another thing during communion we always want to pray for physical healing it's one of the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection and so if you're struggling either with a chronic condition or something acute this morning please let us pray for you about that if you come forward for physical healing you don't have to bring your medical chart they don't need all the details just tell them where you're hurting and they'll make a cross with oil on the outside of your hand and they'll pray simply for God to heal healing's a mystery to us we know God heals. We know He doesn't heal every time, but we know He does heal. and we want to give him the opportunity to do that this morning. So just some instructions, and now let's take a minute and pray. And you're thing. you. Try to do that without any preconceived notions. Most likely what will come to mind, if anything, is a behavior. That's how we think. So you grab onto that behavior. God, is there any place I'm resisting you? You grab onto that behavior and simply say this. God, I confess that I'm resisting you and you just name that. I repent before you this morning. And I submit to you in that area. And I want you to go one step deeper. God, would you show me what's the evil desire and call it that. What is the evil desire in my heart that that temptation is grabbing onto? And that may surprise you. What's the evil desire in my heart? Am I insecure? Am I arrogant? my Am I afraid? my independent, my image conscious, my apathetic. And then ask God to do this. God, I want you to work at that level. I want you to set me free from that evil desire. I want you to heal me, heal my heart. I thank you that the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus goes deeper than my behavior. It goes to the root of the problem, which is my heart. And I'm praying that you would do work at that level this morning. I don't want there to be any handholds for temptation to grab onto. I recognize I'm going to be tempted, but I don't want to give the enemy anything in my heart to grab onto. Me where I'm broken, would you deliver me where I'm chained up? Would you bring life where I'm dead? I've got to pray for each one of us this morning as we come forward and take communion. I pray it would be a time for us of joy and thanksgiving as we recognize you dealt with the issue. You didn't tell us to try harder you didn't tell us to do better you didn't walk away and say forget them you stepped into this world and you lived life 30 something years and died a death that you didn't deserve and overcame that death and rose again Demonstrate the fact that you defeated sin and Satan and death. God, we would be thankful. We can be on your team. We can enjoy the benefits of your victory. And I pray that we would this morning. God, I pray for men and women who are enslaved this morning to sinful beha- uh, behaviors and patterns. As you bring deliverance. I pray for those who resist. Would you break through this morning we acknowledge our need for you God I pray for those who are struggling physically we don't understand healing but God we're asking you to demonstrate the reality of the new covenant in this room this morning by healing bodies not because we deserve it but because you're gracious and kind with communion or if you're on the ministry team, if you come forward. Everybody else, y'all can stay seated. Kim will signal you on when to come.